Amen. All right, your Bibles are open to Luke chapter 7. By the way, thank you for worshiping with us today at Cloverleaf Baptist. I hope your hearts have been stirred already by our time of worship. Um, I'm normally not the, uh, the song leader. Chris normally is here leading the worship, but he's out of town, so um, I got to do that this morning. It's fun to do that from time to time, um, but Chris does a, does a much better job. He's very gifted in that regard, so thanks for bearing with us this morning on that. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, I just want to say welcome. Thank you for coming out to be with us here at Cloverleaf Baptist. I know we are not the only church in Mobile that is preaching the Bible this morning. We're not the only church in Mobile that loves Jesus or believes the truth. In fact, our city is blessed with a number of really good churches. But I really do believe this is a very special group of people, that God is doing something unique. God is doing something special here at Cloverleaf. And our desire here is to simply make much of Jesus Every time we gather, as we sing the word, as we pray the word, as we read the word, as we preach the word, as we live it out, as we display it. And hopefully you've already sensed that this morning. We'll be in Luke 7, continuing on our study of the third gospel. Did any of you all see the, uh, the big graduation speech a few weeks ago? Anyone see the big graduation speech? Is nobody raising their hands? Okay, you don't know which graduation speech I'm talking about. No, I'm not talking about a speech that happened at Yale or at Harvard or at Princeton. I'm talking about a speech that was offered at a little-known school known as Wilberforce University. Anybody heard of Wilberforce University? Oh, great. Okay, Ryan has heard of Wilberforce University. The rest of y'all are going to leave learning something you didn't know before when you came in, so you're at least going to learn one thing today. After offering the normal platitudes that, you know, typically make up graduation speeches about y'all are awesome and congratulations and you guys lived your dreams, the university president, a man by the name of Alfred Pinkard, declared, because you, to the graduates, because you have shown that you are capable of doing work under difficult circumstances, because you represent the best of your generation, we wish to give you a fresh start. So therefore... The Wilberforce University Board of Trustees has authorized me to forgive any debt. Your accounts have been cleared, and you don't owe Wilberforce anything. Congratulations. Man, if you were a graduate sitting in the audience and you had a big debt, that would be amazing news. And if you watch the video, I encourage you to look it up on YouTube today. The place just goes crazy. Students are, are weeping, and they are clapping. They are cheering. They're dancing in the, in the aisles of the graduation hall. Something similar happened a couple years ago at Morehouse College where a wealthy philanthropist did the same thing. He gave out millions of dollars to forgive student debt. And one of the students graduating from Morehouse College back in 2019 said, I had a spreadsheet figuring out how long my student loans were going to take. I was going to be paying half of my income every month for the next 20 years. I was going to be eating you know, tuna and trying to cut the budget to pay off my debt. He says, the spreadsheet is deleted, and I don't know anything anymore. Now, why am I telling you that story? That is a beautiful illustration of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ looks at sinners like you and me and says, your accounts have been cleared, and you don't owe anything for your sins. It's forgiven. The debt has been wiped out. Now, a follow-up on that story, I read an article in university business, it says there was, however, a catch. This is referring to the one that was a couple weeks ago at Wilberforce University. 
There was a catch. Wilberforce was not eliminating all debt students had, just debt due to the university. They had to clarify because students are like, hang on a second, I have this loan that I got from the bank or from the government. They're like, sorry, we can't forgive that. Here's why. Wilberforce University can't forgive debt that is owed to someone other than Wilberforce University, right? Makes sense. Okay, if you owe Regions Bank $100,000 and you owe me $10, I can't come along and say, I hereby absolve you of all your debt to, to, to Regions Bank. Okay, it doesn't work that way. Why? Because I'm not the one that's owed the money. The only one who can forgive the debt is the one to whom the money is owed, right? That makes sense, right? You can't go out and forgive debt on behalf of other institutions. They had to clarify that. And that's interesting because that is really the illustration Jesus uses in our text. Daniel read it a few minutes ago. Jesus tells this little parable about uh, two debtors and one owed a bunch, one owed a little, and then the lender forgave everything. And then Jesus forgives the woman her sin. Look in verse 49 of our passage of Luke 7. And they that sat at dinner, those who sat at meat with him, began to say within themselves, who is this who forgiveth sins also? Right, if Jesus comes along and forgives the debt of sin, then it means he's the one to whom the debt was owed. Sin is against God. Jesus forgiving sin is him claiming to be God. Right, he's claiming to be the one to whom the sin debt is owed, and he has the right and the ability to come along and declare sins forgiven. That, in fact, is the heart of our text, verse 49. Who is this who forgives sin also? In fact, we've been looking at Luke 7 over recent weeks, and that is the big question. Art thou he who should come, or do we look for another? Who is Jesus? Is he the promised Messiah? Is he the one that the Old Testament looked forward to? Or is there someone else that we need to look forward to? Is there a different Messiah, a different Christ? Jesus proves that he is that Messiah in Luke 7. Opening part of the chapter, he goes and helps a centurion, a a Roman centurion, a Gentile centurion, helps heal his servant, displaying his power, displaying his compassion. Then he raises a widow's son from the dead at Nain. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And then John comes and asks the question. Jesus says, go back and tell him what you've seen and heard. These acts of compassion and power are the credentials that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Messiah the Old Testament prophesied. He's not different. He's not falling short of that ideal, but he is, in fact, fulfilling it. That is what Luke 7 is all about. We then get this sort of conclusion to, the, to that, that question. What, what kind of Messiah is he? he is a, he's not a Messiah who's going to go and destroy the Romans. He's not a Messiah who's going to come and bring health, wealth, and prosperity, contrary to what some would say on TBN and other places. He's a Messiah who comes to forgive sin. And that's good news this morning because every one of us here in this room are sinners. Maybe you've forgotten that this morning. I've been saved for many, many decades, and we've forgotten the sins from which we've been forgiven. Every one of us are sinners. We need the debt forgiven. We must be forgiven. We've got a a debt crisis. We hear about debt crises from from time to time, and every so often Congress will raise the debt ceiling and kick the can down the road and be like, hey, the grandkids will pay for it. Don't worry about it. We'll 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 give them the tab. Or you hear about the student loan crisis. We have a major debt crisis, one that is infinitely greater than the $25 trillion or whatever it is the U.S. government owes or the, the student loan crisis or credit card debt. It is the debt that our sin owes. It's a debt that we cannot pay. Very simply, this passage tells us we must be forgiven. You must be forgiven. I must be forgiven. We're debtors who owe a debt we cannot pay. So I want to just unpack four realities about forgiveness. Notice first off, forgiveness needed, the first scene here. So verse 36, one of the Pharisees desired him, was requesting, was, uh, was wishing that he would eat with him. 
The tense of the verb conveys maybe there's some persistence. The guy keeps on asking Jesus. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. He, he came to his house for dinner. Now, maybe it was after the Sabbath. It was sort of Jewish piety that if you had a, a great rabbi speaking in the Sabbath, you make sure that he goes home to your house and has a good meal after the Sabbath. Or maybe this, this Pharisee, who we find out his name is Simon, Shimon Simeon is a great Old Testament name. Maybe he wanted bragging rights about hosting uh, Palestine's most celebrated new rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. He right, wants to have this famous guy for dinner so he can talk about it. Maybe if he had Twitter or Instagram, he'd be posting pictures of, look at me with this famous guy at my house. Either way, Simon invited Jesus for dinner. Uh, now, it says there at the end of verse 36, he went into, to, into the Pharisee's house, which, by the way, maybe is a surprise. Jesus and the Pharisees, if you know anything about the Gospels, they're not friendly towards Jesus, yet Jesus is willing to go to their house for dinner. He will eat with publicans and sinners, and he will also eat with Pharisees. He's not legalistic towards Pharisees. Sometimes we get people doing kind of reverse legalism, being like, well, we don't hang out with religious people because they're all hypocrites. Jesus didn't do that. He was willing to hang out with even hypocrites, which is comforting because we're all hypocrites, right? Now he goes and says he sat down to meet. Uh, We kind of miss something in that translation. We picture a table and chairs sitting like we do at a Western table. But the sense of this word is actually to recline at table. Recline at the table. The way that a Middle Eastern meal would happen, particularly a formal banquet, which this seems to be, is they'd have a low table near the floor and these, these low couches or maybe a pile of blankets that you would actually lay down on. And typically you would prop yourself up with your left elbow and you would eat with your right hand and your feet would be away from the table. And then the next person would be up close to you. That's why at the Last Supper it says that John was the one who lay on Jesus' chest, right? He would have been right there next to him at the table. He had sort of the prime seat at the table. So it's a very intimate affair. This is not just a we're going to Cracker Barrel after church sitting around a big table, but this is close. This is, this is, this is intimate. This is table fellowship. To eat with someone was to, was to almost go into a, into, into a friendship with them. It says they reclined at table. Feet stretching away from the table. That's an important detail, so tuck that away because of what happens later. Elaborate though it was, though this is an elaborate feast, though the food no doubt was delicious, no doubt the man's house was, was gloriously arrayed, Simon's treatment of Jesus was actually quite cold. The text that was, that was read earlier, we find out that Jesus really takes him to task. He says, when I came in, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head. You didn't give me the, the kiss of friendship when I came in, came in. It's almost as if Simon the Pharisee is doing the bare minimum because he doesn't really think Jesus is that amazing. He's like, sure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat him to dinner, but I'm not going to do anything beyond what is the bare minimum that would be expected of a host. In fact, he's omitting courtesies that a Middle Eastern host would typically have extended to a celebrated guest. Just imagine with me, you were to have a very prominent individual over for dinner. Let's just say for sake of illustration, Nick Saban, right? Anybody out there like Alabama football? All right, or whoever the coach is for Auburn, I don't even know who that is. But let's say you're having one of these guys over for dinner. You're not going to just be like, oh, hey, we ordered some pizza over at Pizza Hut, and there's paper plates in the pantry, and uh, you know, just kind of sit wherever. No, you'd probably go to some lengths to make it a special meal, to find out what he would like, to treat him with respect when he comes in. You'd welcome him, you'd make sure everything's just so, because why? You respect him. Simon the Pharisee does not do that. It's almost as if the entire meal is one of those well-orchestrated snubs. You, you, know, you, you hear about that where people like, it, it, on a s- surface it looks really friendly, but it's really a well-orchestrated snub conveying just sort of cold disdain for Jesus. Yeah, I'm having him over for dinner, but I'm not treating him as anyone special. You see, an important detail is we come, even though this Pharisee was religiously 
moral. He's a Pharisee. He keeps the rules. He follows the law. He goes to synagogue. He does the things that a religious person would do. He doesn't have very high regard for Jesus. There's, there's forgiveness that's needed. Even the Pharisee needs forgiveness. Let's not get the idea that the Pharisee, well, he's got it together. He doesn't need forgiveness, but the woman does. Now, as we go on in this, uh, considering the, the forgiveness needed, we see the Pharisee needs it. But notice the woman. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, who had invited him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would, know, would, would have known who and what manner of woman this is who toucheth him, for she is a sinner. So we see this woman's intrusion. Now, notice how verse 37, And behold, okay, we're like, oh, that's nice sort of Bible speak. It, it, literally, Luke is saying, He's telling the story. And look, he's almost saying, those of you who are listening, reading this, envision the scene here. Here comes this woman into the banquet. This is, this is quite an intrusion. This is shocking what happens. Look, a woman who was a sinner on the town comes into the banquet hall. You see, if ever there was someone who needed forgiveness, it was her. By the way, we don't know who she is. Uh, it's, it's very, very unlikely that it's Mary Magdalene because of the way she's introduced in the next chapter. We don't know who this woman is. But she's a sinner on the town, likely a prostitute, someone whose sin was public, someone whose sin was well-known, someone whose identity was wrapped up in her sin. She was someone who we would be like, oh, we know such and such individual. That, that person has, has a record. We can look them up on the sex offender registry. That person, we saw their mugshot in the, in the newspaper last week. That's someone whose sin is well-known, someone whose sin is public, someone who publicly identifies as LGBTQ+, or whatever the acronym is now, someone who identifies with the sin, who is known for their sin, whose sin is public, who we would look at and be like, oh, yeah, they really need Jesus. That was her. She needed forgiveness. Now you say, well, how is she getting into the banquet hall? Like, she obviously was not on the guest list. She's sort of a, a gate crasher here. You want to remember that story from about 10, 11 years ago? There was a state dinner that was being hosted in the Obama White House. And this couple came in, and they talked their way through security all the way into the state dinner with, I think it was like the prime minister of India. They weren't on any guest list. They got pictures with all these people that just kind of show up. Like, not supposed to be there. She's not supposed to be there. Nonetheless, banquets like this were actually public. Right, So you, the way that a Middle Eastern house would have been built, you would have had the house around on four sides and then a courtyard in the middle. And, and sort of the doors to the house would have been left open. For someone like Simon the Pharisee, he would have been like, hey, townspeople, you can come and stand around the walls and listen to the learned conversation that I'm going to have with my guest. And so people would come and they would listen in on the conversation and sort of be in awe of the spectacle, being like, man, look at how these people get to eat. So there would have been other people, onlookers around the walls. But she does something unusual. She doesn't just sort of melt in the shadows back into a corner where she's out of the way. She comes right into the guest of honor to Jesus and begins anointing his feet. Here was a woman who needed forgiveness. Ruined relationships dogged her, just, just followed her. Guilt plagued her. Emptiness filled her. Synagogues shunned her. She wouldn't have been allowed to go to synagogue. Good people would have avoided her, crossed the street when they saw her coming. Her life was a shattered wreck. There's emptiness. There's nothing. It's just guilt. There's just shame, and it's just weighing down. Which, by the way, if you wonder, why, why is there a thing called Pride Month? Because there's an inherent sense of shame that comes with sin. 
And people try to combat that shame by being like, well, I'm going to celebrate my sin and be really bold about my sin to try and take away the sense of shame that inherently comes with sin. Shame, if it is felt for sin, is actually a normal and a good thing. It is so dangerous to be like, I don't want to feel shame, I don't want to feel guilt, and I'm going to try to smother that under sort of pride and blatant sinning. She felt that. Somewhere along the way, I believe she had heard Jesus preaching. So down to the, later on in the text when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven in verse 48, that is actually, the, the tense of that is a perfect, okay, perfect passive in the original, which means your sins have been forgiven. Before she ever came to Jesus at this feast, her sins had already been forgiven. So I think this means she heard Jesus preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and thought, could it be that there is grace and mercy with this message? And she believed Jesus. She accepted his message. She had repented of her life. She had put her trust in Jesus and had come to saving faith in him. So here she is just overwhelmed with gratitude. I believe she's coming here not as an act of penance, but as an act of gratitude. This this one who has forgiven her. What can I do to show him how grateful I am, to show him the love that I now have, the loyalty I now have? She does really the only thing she can think of. What's the most honorable thing I can do for? What's the most valuable possession I have? Ah, my alabaster of perfume. Now, an alabaster would have been a a small vial of perfume in a uh, a, um, sort of a rock, a stone case that had a narrow neck on it. These were extremely valuable, these alabasters of perfume. For Jewish women, they wore them around their necks, so they had them at all times. Uh, even the rabbis who were like, you don't ever carry anything on the Sabbath day, no burdens on the Sabbath, they're like, okay, you can carry your alabaster box. They made an exception for this. So don't think like a box or a chest. Think a sort of a little bottle of perfume. And the way you would open it is you would break the bottle and pour it out. Her old life has been deleted. Her new life has been launched. Her indebtedness, that spreadsheet, has been wiped off the hard drive. So she's coming to express her gratitude and worship to Jesus. So her plan was to come into the feast and to humbly anoint his feet with this ointment to show, I love you and I owe my life to you. But as she approaches Jesus, things don't go according to plan. Emotions take hold of her. When she approaches Jesus, she breaks out in weeping. This was not something she planned on. It wasn't, okay, when I get to Jesus, when I'm three feet away, I'll start crying. And this was not orchestrated. This is just an overflow of the emotion and the gratitude and the love of her heart. She is so full of joy at being forgiven and brokenness at the sin that she once had that she just breaks out in these tears that are mixed with joy and grief at the same time. She, she, her life is marked with freedom from sin, but now indebtedness to the one who saved her. She's been a slave to sin, but now she's going to be a slave to righteousness. And it, 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 she pours herself out in humility and honor before Jesus. So as her tears fell, they fell onto the the grimy feet of Jesus that were stretched away from the table. Normally what would happen at a feast like this is a servant would come and wash the feet of the guests. Everyone's wearing sandals. There's no pavement. It's hot. It's been hot out there, right? I went outside yesterday and mowed the lawn for like 30 minutes and every article of clothing was absolutely saturated, including my hat, and it's just nasty, right? Think about that in the Middle East. It's hot, it's sweaty, you're walking, your feet get sweaty, and then you walk through the dirt. Your feet would be literally layered in grime and mud. It would been disgusting. Simon didn't do that for his guests, particularly Jesus, because he doesn't really hold him in high regard. Her tears begin to streak down onto the grimy feet of Jesus. You picture that, the water beginning to, to, to wipe away the dirt on his feet. Her tears fell on his feet. 
This is not what she intended now. She's sort of a, a, a mess at this point. The tears are flowing. The, the sobs are coming. The tears are falling on his feet. So she did the only thing she knew to do. Look back at the text. She stood at his feet behind him, weeping, feet stretched away from the table so she can be behind him and also at his feet because of what we said about the custom here. And she began to wash his feet with tears and wipe them with the hairs of her head. She, doesn't bring, she didn't bring a towel. She didn't plan on doing this. So she unbinds her hair and takes her hair and begins to wash the feet of Jesus. Now, that is uncouth in Jewish culture. A woman was to keep her hair bound at all times. She was only ever to unbind her hair in the presence of her husband. This was socially unacceptable. This, was, this would have been sort of tantamount as sort of scandalous public behavior, immodesty. And yet she's like, I don't care. I'm going to clean the feet of the Savior. She then does what she intended to do, anointed his feet with the, with the perfume. Verse 38 uh, and verse 37, that word ointment, think perfume. That's the sense of the word. Wiping his feet with the hairs of her head and then kissing his feet. What does this tell us about her? It tells us that she has a very high regard for Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just another rabbi. You don't do this for just any rabbi. She honored Jesus to such a degree that he was worthy of all of her sacrifice, worthy of, uh, of all of her humility, all of her love, because he's the Savior who forgave her. And if he forgave her, then he must be God. She, has, she honors Jesus, and she also humbles herself in his presence. This act of humility and honor was div- driven by deep affection, deep gratitude, deep humility. She was a forgiven sinner who loved Jesus profoundly. And guess what? She wasn't afraid to show it. You can imagine everybody at the table was staring at her being like, what on earth is this crazy woman doing? It was almost embarrassing. It was almost sort of uncouth. Yet she loved Jesus so much she didn't care what other people thought. I think sometimes in our worship, especially as Baptists, right, we don't want to go overboard in our emotion to such a degree that we don't show any emotion. Paul would say about the, 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 the Jews in his day, they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. Like, man, there's emotion, there's enthusiasm, there's passion, but not knowledge. But sometimes I wonder if we have the opposite problem, where we have knowledge, but no zeal. And we have right doctrine. Hey, we look at our doctrinal statement, boom, boom, boom. We got the theology down. We don't do all the crazy things that other people do. We can begin to commend ourselves. But then we come to worship, and there's not a whole lot of passion. And the hymns are being sung, and you're just kind of like, eh, I don't like this song, I'm not going to sing it. Or, okay, I'm going to sing hallelujah, all I have is Christ, but I'm going to mumble the words as if they don't really mean anything. What if we saw this woman as an example, which Jesus sets her out as an example, and says, you know what, I'm going to worship and display my love to Jesus, and I don't really care what other people think. I don't mean drawing attention to yourself. That's a dangerous to be like, everyone look at me, here I am, worshiping like crazy. I don't mean the self-seeking, chaotic, like everyone look at me kind of thing. But I mean where I am so in love with Jesus and so enraptured and so full of joy that that is displayed in my demeanor. Parents, what if your children saw you worshiping Jesus as if you really loved him? What if that came out in the way that you prayed? What if that came out in the way that you read Scripture reverently in the home? You see... Our love for Jesus isn't going to be simply shown in saying, oh, I love him. It'll be shown in our passion and in our obedience. And we come back to the Pharisee in verse 39. We kind of get him, there's a sandwich, right? The Pharisee in verse 36. Then the woman, then we come back to the Pharisee in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee which had bidden him, which that's a statement, the Pharisee who had called him, who had invited him, that was as far as his hospitality when he invited Jesus, and that was about it. When he saw it, he spoke within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is who touches him, 
for she's a sinner. We get a glimpse into the Pharisee's self-righteous heart. It says he says within himself, these are the thoughts of his heart. He's not saying these things verbally. He's smart enough not to do that. He's thinking, well, I can't believe this is going on. He looks at, he's appalled at this woman's display of emotion and worship. He's the one who's in church being like, and that person's really singing kind of loud, like, I can't believe that. Can't, can't they get their act together? But more seriously, his sin goes much, more deep, much deeper than that. His sin is not just, oh, look at the woman and, and what she's doing. His sin is he does not believe that Jesus is a prophet. Notice how verse 39 is formulated. If he were a prophet, he would have known. It's called a contrary to fact condition. He doesn't believe the premise and he doesn't believe the result. If he were a prophet, and I don't think that he is, he would have known, which he obviously doesn't. Here's his sort of premise. Holy men like Jesus don't let sinful women touch him. Right? They have nothing to do with that. He just assumes that this woman is still a sinner. She's not been forgiven. And he assumes that people like that cannot be forgiven. And he cannot fathom a Messiah who would fully know sin. He like fully know how bad her sin was and yet be able to forgive it and welcome her into his presence. He cannot fathom that. He's saying, so if Jesus were a prophet... Right? If he had sort of inside knowledge from God, he would know, man, this woman's a prostitute, and she can't touch me. I'm going to kick her face away. That's what he would have done. He would have shooed her away and kicked her out of the banquet, is what Simon the Pharisee would have done. You see, whereas her sin was public and open, his sin was private and hidden. So I mentioned a class earlier of people, sin, public sin. But for many of you, for many of us, our sin is not so much the public that we, we have on the, you know, the Facebook profile picture that we, we blast around the world. Our sin is carefully concealed under a veneer of religiosity. Our sin is concealed under an attitude of sort of self-righteous hypocrisy. Our sin is covered. It's in the heart. It's secret. And guess what? Sin that is secret is still sin. Pharisees assume that if you're going to draw near to God, well, you just, you just got to sort of cover the sin and conceal it. The gospel says if you want to draw near to God, you don't conceal it, you confess it. This is the amazing thing about the gospel. For people who have believed the gospel, for people who are a gospel people, Christians should be a gospel people. We're not people who conceal our sin, but people who confess it. In fact, the gospel gives you the ability to confront your sin head on. Think about it. If I'm in a works righteousness mindset, right, where I'm thinking, all right, in order to get near to God, I got to be a good person. That's going to lead me to try to diminish my sin, to try to defend my sin, to try to conceal my sin, to try to deceive about my sin. If, however, God is rich in mercy and he forgives sinners fully and, free, sinners fully and freely when they confess and repent, that gives me the ability to be like, I don't have to hide anything. I don't have to pretend that I'm better than I am. I can just lay it out there before God and he will forgive it. The gospel frees us from hypocrisy. It frees us from that guilt and that shame and that effort that goes into pretending that we're better than we really are. The Pharisee didn't understand that. I say forgiveness needed because both the woman and the Pharisee needed forgiveness. Both of them. The woman needed it for her immorality. The Pharisee needed it for his self-righteous pride. See, both those sins are an offense to God. Both those sins will send you to hell. Selfishness will send you to hell. Immorality will send you to hell. Pride will send you to hell. Any sin will send you to hell. And by the way, our hearts don't just have one or two sins. Our hearts are plagued with sin. The sin grows in our hearts like weeds grow in your garden when you leave it alone. That, that is the nature of our hearts. Both private and public sin demand God's judgment and both require forgiveness. So there's forgiveness needed. But I wanted you to see, secondly, forgiveness provided. This next scene. Beginning in verse 40. 
Jesus answering said unto him, notice that word answering. Oftentimes we'll get that Jesus answered and said, answered and said. It's just kind of a way that Greek formulates things. But Jesus is answering something that the Pharisee didn't even know that he asked. Right? In verse 39, the Pharisee has this conversation in himself. And Jesus is a prophet. He is the Son of God. He knows all things and he knows what the Pharisee's thinking. And he's going to speak directly to it. Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he says, Master, say on. So Jesus is going to now confront Simon the Pharisee's sin, confront his hypocrisy, confront his pride. He says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Now, if you're Simon, you're thinking, well, this is odd. Does he really? He can't know what I'm really thinking. And maybe did my facial expression give something away? Simon, I have something to say to you. And then the Pharisee says politely, Master, Rabbi, Teacher, say on. What a lie. He just finished saying, I don't think he's really a prophet. I don't really think Jesus is anything. But in public, he's going to be respectful and call him Master and Teacher so everyone so we can keep up sort of the appearances of being a hospitable host. Jesus tells a parable. Look at verse 41. There was a certain creditor, that is a lender, which had two debtors. One owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? So he takes this illustration of debt. He's got two debtors, of course, picturing two sinners. Both of them owe, understand this, get this, both of them owe an enormous sum of money. One owes 50 denarii, the other owes 500 denarii. Okay, a difference of, of 10. Uh, word translated pence here is that word denarii, denarius, would have been one day's wage for the average laborer. So one of them owes 50 days' worth of wages, and we have no idea what the term is on the loan. Maybe the loan was like, hey, pay it back in a month, and you have to pay 50 days' worth of labor in one month. Back in Bible times, people didn't have a whole lot of margin. Okay? It's not like, well, just devote a portion of your budget to that and get your debt snowball going and break out your Dave Ramsey book and make it happen. No, they didn't have those opportunities. And if you didn't pay the debt back, you could actually be taken in as an indentured servant. You could be thrown into debtor's prison. You're, you, we even have a story in the Old Testament where someone's children were taken uh, uh, to pay the debt back. This was a big deal, right, to pay the 50 denarii back. If I came to you and said, you owe me two months' wages right now, and if you don't, you're going to prison. How many of you really would have two months', two months wages just sort of sitting around in your bank account to pay loans off? Right? So that guy can't pay it back any more than the other, right? The one who owes 50. And then there's the one who owes 500 denarii. He is, he is more incapable, if it's possible to be more incapable, of paying back the debt. You think about 500 work days worth of wages. Even if you work six days a week, this is going to take two years' worth. Uh, uh, of labor to pay it back. We're talking about enormous sums of money. So verse, so both of them owed, neither of them could pay. Notice verse 42, and when they had nothing to pay, said, let's not get the idea that the one owing 50 was on the path of sort of earning his way back and paying the debt. Neither of them could pay. He frankly forgave them both. Love that word translated forgave. I mean, it is the word charizomai. We get the word charis, the word grace. It's the word that is to forgive freely as a favor, to cancel a sum of money that is owed, to cancel, to show oneself gracious by forgiving wrongdoing, to forgive, to pardon. This word can do double duty. It can refer to financial, forgiving a financial debt, and it can also be used to, forg- to refer to a spiritual debt, forgiving sin. That's why Jesus uses it. He forgives freely, favor, no strings attached. It's not even, okay, I'll pay the debt off if you meet these conditions. It says he frankly forgave, unconditional forgiveness, total forgiveness. 
So here's the point. The debtors are forgiven at great expense to the lender. Right, so when, when Wilberforce University forgives those loans, it's not just, okay, cool, we... No, that actually costs the university money when debt is forgiven. People were like, hey, the government should just forgive student loans. That's going to cost someone, taxpayers, right, a bunch of money. Like, probably not a good idea. Just throw my oar into that uh, opinion on that. Uh, but when, when a debt is forgiven, it is at great expense to the lender. So let's say I loan out to you $1,000. You can't pay it back. I, I just say forgive it. I just lost $1,000, right? That's effectively what just happened. This, this lender just lost 550 denarii. That's a huge cost to absorb to himself. And beloved, you say, how does God provide forgiveness? God does not provide forgiveness by just, oh, well, we'll just take it off the balance sheet. It's not there anymore. We just sort of did something on the Excel spreadsheets you don't owe anymore. No, it costs to forgive. Sin always has a price. The wages of sin is what? Death. Sin requires eternal punishment from God. That is, it's, it's, sin is committed against an eternal, infinite being. Therefore, the penalty is infinite and eternal. Whether it's big sins or little sins, the penalty is eternal for, for every sinner on the planet who has ever lived. So when God forgives, it's not just a, uh, a declaration, I now declare and absolve you from your guilt. That's sort of what Islam teaches, that God just sort of unilaterally, just sort of arbitrarily by divine fiat, just declares people forgiven and has nothing to do with, with really anything or justice or any of that sort of thing. The God of the Bible does not forgive that way. He is far too holy to just simply sweep sin under the rug, to simply ignore sin. He is so holy, he requires a payment. And guess what? He provides the payment himself. That's why the cross matters. That's why Jesus coming to this earth matters. When Jesus dies on the cross, he, the one who knew no sin became sin for us. He takes the penalty. He takes the punishment. He takes the debt on himself, and he pays it to the final farthing for you and me. He doesn't pay off 499 denarii and say, you have to pay the last one yourself just for good measure. He pays it all. When he says to Telestai, it is finished, that is to say the debt has been paid fully. Charizomai, forgiven freely at great expense to the lender. It cost God the death of his own son. It cost Jesus absorbing the blows that our sin deserved, suffering the wrath that we had racked up. So how is forgiveness provided? It's provided by God himself to God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Wow. That's what that illustration is saying, how the, the debt is forgiven. Now, we get down to the point of the illustration in verses 42 and 43. Verse 42, tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? So the question is, the one who pay, owed a lot and the one who owed a little, which one's going to have a greater sense of love or gratitude or appreciation to the lender? Well, Simon answers the question. Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to, to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, thou hast judged rightly. Now notice how, how tentative Simon is. It's kind of an obvious question, which one loves most? Well, the one who owed the most would have the greatest sense of appreciation. But he's kind of tentative because I think he's, he, really, he realizes where this line of questioning is headed. He's like, uh-oh, I just sort of walked into the trap that Jesus set for me to expose my, my sin and my depravity. I suppose he that owed the most. You think about that illustration I opened with, with the people at, at Wilberforce University. People who were probably most excited that day were the people who had the greatest debt. And I would imagine there would be some people who would be really disgruntled. You know who would be the most disgruntled when, when people just sort of unilaterally forgive debt? The people who paid their own way, right? I'm kind of th- I've kind of thought that, like, man, if they do the student loan thing, I feel like 
I didn't take out a student loan. Like, so why do I have to pay for your student loan? He's saying the one who was forgiven the most is going to love the most, is going to be the most appreciative, have the most gratitude. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. See, Jesus' point here is that forgiveness produces love. If we've been forgiven, the natural consequence of that forgiveness is we will love. If we realize, man, I have a great debt, and God forgave it for me in Christ The natural result of that is love. See, the woman, she was profoundly aware of her need. She didn't need anyone to tell her she was a sinner. She knew down in the depths of her soul that she was a sinner and there was no hope for her. The Pharisee, on the other hand, was full of self-righteousness and he had no concept as to his true condition. And thus he had little love. It's not that the Pharisee didn't have a debt to owe. He had a debt that was equally unpayable to the woman's, but he didn't recognize it. He wouldn't see it. He was blind to it. So forgiveness is provided by the lender himself, a great expense to himself. But notice, thirdly, forgiveness evidenced. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road. How do I know that I have been forgiven? Right? That's a great question. That's one of the most important questions you can ask. How can I know that that payment has been applied to my case, that my debt has been wiped clear, that my sin has been paid for? Notice the proof. Notice the evidence. So Jesus now sets about applying the parable. Verse 44 and he turned to the woman. Okay, up to this point, nobody has said a word to the woman. Nobody's even acknowledged her presence. He turns to the woman. He looks at the woman. And then he says to Simon. So what he's doing is saying, here's this woman. I'm going to now bring her forward as an example, a positive example. Seest thou this woman? Verse 44. I entered into thine house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. This woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Notice how he's contrasting Simon's treatment with the woman's treatment of him. Now, the way this is formulated in verse 44, I entered into thine house. Okay, the word order is really weird in Greek. It has your into the house. I entered your into the house. It's almost like he's bringing the your to the front. In other words, he's saying, Simon, you're the host. These are the things that you should have done. This was your responsibility to treat your guests in a way that was hospitable. Now, hospitality, obviously, in the first century, really different than ours. Be kind of weird if people came into your house today after church and you're like, take off your shoes and you get the hose off and you spray their feet off. They would be kind of insulted being like, do you not approve of my hygiene habits? Like, what's the problem? In the ancient world, that was a great courtesy to wash someone's feet the, the kissing, it would be a really odd thing if someone came into your house and you welcome them with a kiss, kind of like they do in France, right, where they do the kiss on either side of the cheek. That was sort of the idea in the culture. It was sort of like extending a handshake, or here in the South, we, we hug, right? That, that's the idea. It was, a, it was a way of greeting someone and letting them know they were welcome. Simon didn't do that for Jesus. Anointing the head with oil was just a, 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 a nice courtesy to, to anoint their head with some olive oil, to kind of help them sort of clean up, freshen up, sort of feel ready to go before they go into the meal. Simon the Pharisee did none of those things because he didn't have much regard for Jesus. But here's the woman, in contrast, who's done all of these things but in an infinitely greater way. She didn't just sort of formally wash the feet. but She washed them with her tears. She didn't just anoint his head with a little bit of olive oil, but she anointed them with the most expensive perfume she owned. She didn't just greet Jesus with the formal kiss on either cheek, but she kissed his feet. Jesus is really 
going after Simon. Could you imagine going to someone's house for dinner and then laying into them for their lack of hospitality? That's, that's an unusual thing to do. Jesus is really letting Simon have it. You see, Simon's behavior expressed disdain for Jesus. He confirms that he had himself had not been forgiven. He could not pay the debt himself. To the Pharisee, Jesus was just a curiosity, but to the woman, Jesus was king. To the Pharisee, Jesus was a fraudulent prophet. To the woman, Jesus was a life-restoring savior. What a contrast they have, and it comes out in their treatment of Jesus. So this meal got awkward really, really fast. You ever been there where it's like Thanksgiving, everyone's having a good time, and then someone says something, and it gets awkward fast. This meal gets awkward, where Jesus does something that none of us would dream of doing, which is just criticizing and picking apart the hospitality of the host. Now, he's not doing it because Jesus is like, I can't believe you wouldn't do this for me. Like, I'm special. But rather to expose to the Pharisee his lack of love for Jesus. So I said a minute ago, forgiveness produces love, right? Forgiveness invariably always produces love in the part of the one who is forgiven, If that is true, okay, it's kind of a mathematical formula. If forgiveness produces love, then love proves forgiveness, right? So Jesus forgives me, it results in love. How do I know I've been forgiven? There will be a profound and deep love for Jesus that proves love. Forgiveness prompts love. Love proves forgiveness. So therefore, in this woman, Jesus is saying, look at the love she has for me. Guess what this proves about her? It proves that she has been forgiven. So notice verse 47. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which were many are forgiven. For she has loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Now, verse 47 is an easy one to misinterpret. Our Roman Catholic friends would say, see, look, there's proof that forgiveness is a result of love. Look, she loves, and and Jesus forgives her. Obviously, that cannot be the case based on what we just read in the parable. The point of the parable is forgiveness produces love. And so he's saying, she has been forgiven, and here's how you know she has been forgiven. The presence of love for me in her life is proof that she has been forgiven. She has already been forgiven. So verse 47, again, I'll note that the the tense of that that verb, her sins are forgiven, is a, is a perfect passive. It's, it's already happened in the past, and she remains in the state of being forgiven. She was forgiven previously, and that forgiveness produced love, and the presence of that love proves that she has been forgiven. Beloved, it is foolish. It is dangerous to claim, I have been forgiven by Jesus. It is foolish to claim, I am a Christian, when there is no evidence of love for Jesus in your life. Love for Jesus is the essential proof of faith in Jesus. Love for Christ, gratitude to him, worship, these are the natural fruits of being forgiven. They don't produce it. They're not the cause of it. They are the consequence of it. You can claim all day long, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I have a fish on my car. But is there love for Jesus evidenced in your life? Say, yeah, I really, really love Jesus. You know what Jesus said? If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. I love Jesus, but I don't ever attend church. Guess what? He commanded us to gather. I love Jesus, but I never approach him in prayer or read the Bible. Those are things you would do if you loved him. I love Jesus, but I won't forgive someone else. He's commanded us to forgive. Here's the point. We can claim all day long till we're blue in the face that I'm a Christian, that I, Lord, Lord, I say all the right things. But if there is not the evidence of a genuine love relationship in your life for Jesus, that claim rings hollow. 
I want to just call you, examine your heart, right? Is, have you truly been forgiven? Have you truly been forgiven? This woman heard Jesus' preaching. She believed in him. Her life is transformed, and she comes back to pour out her love to Jesus. That is why we gather week after week as Christians, right? We come together every week, and we sing celebration to Christ and about Christ and to our God about who he is because we've been forgiven, and we've never gotten over it. That's what a Christian is, someone who has been forgiven and has never gotten over it. Simon got Jesus completely wrong. Simon also got himself completely wrong. He viewed Jesus as, eh, he's a nobody, and I'm really special. Since Simon didn't view himself as a sinner, he did not avail himself of Jesus' grace. So Jesus says, to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. He's saying, Simon, your behavior shows that you don't really love me, and your behavior shows that you have not actually been forgiven. Simon would have thought, well, my works. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you have not been forgiven. You need to be forgiven. Is there evidence in your life of being forgiven by Jesus Christ? Has there been a time in your life where you have bowed the knee in repentance and surrender to King Jesus and been forgiven? Is there proof in your life that that is the reality, that is that, 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 that is the ground on which you stand? Is that the case? Apart from any awareness of sin, we will have little expression of love. Like the man in this parable or like the man in the parable, Simon's debt was as unpayable as the woman's. He stood in as much need of redemption as the sinner woman, but was dangerously unaware of it. You think about this medically, right? It's a dangerous thing to have a, have a diagnosis of, hey, you have cancer, we caught it in early stages. This is a scary thing. How much more dangerous to have cancer and not know about it? We're all sinners, If we're aware of it, we can seek the cure in Christ. But if you say, I'm not aware of it, I'm going to ignore the symptoms, it's got to be something else, I'm I'm just going to pretend it's not there. You have a deadly disease in your soul. Have you been forgiven? But notice this final scene in verses 48 to 50. We see forgiveness declared. He said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. For the very first time, somebody actually speaks to the woman. And these are the gracious, precious, loving, kind words of our Savior. He says, your sins have been forgiven and remain forgiven and will always be forgiven. Thy sins are forgiven. He reaffirms the reality that her sins have indeed been forgiven. She stands forgiven and accepted in his sight. To Jesus, she's not a sinner woman anymore, but she is a forgiven saint. Now, the question comes up in verse 50. They that sat at meat with him, the other people around the table, begin to whisper among themselves, who is this that forgives sins also? Like, who, who is this guy who claims this divine prerogative? Listen, the Jews understood very, very well that sin was against God, and therefore atonement had to be offered to God, and forgiveness had to come from God. No one else can stand in the place of God and declare people forgiven. No priest can absolve you and be like, you are now forgiven. Here, here's some pen- No, the only one who can forgive is God. And Jesus here is claiming to be God because he is. Simon was not only wrong about saying he's not a prophet. Jesus is so much more he is God's son. Simon got Jesus wrong on the most foundational level. That question, who, gets to the heart of the matter. That Jesus, his identity is that of being the sin forgiver. I said on Wednesday night, grace is not just something God does. It is something that he is. And forgiveness is the same with Jesus. It's not just something he does, but it is something that he is. He is a sin forgiver. He is a sin bearer. This is the heart of Jesus. He is the friend of sinners, as we sang earlier, and the forgiver of sinners. Listen, he can only be the friend of sinners if he is the forgiver of sinners. 
The only way Jesus can be your friend is if your sins are forgiven. Otherwise, he is your judge and your most terrifying enemy. So verse 50, and he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee, go into peace. It's literally, your faith has saved you, go into peace. Well, he already told her her sins have been forgiven. Why does he say it again, thy faith has saved thee? Because what he's doing here is going to reaffirm her forgiveness. Reaffirm. She doesn't need to just hear it once. She needs to hear it again. Maybe she's feeling the, 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 the hateful looks of the other guests and feeling the guilt and the shame coming back again. And Jesus is reminding her, no, 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 you don't need to feel guilt and shame anymore for sins that are under the blood. Jesus ignores the muttering of the dinner guests and says, the faith of you has saved you. By the way, there's people out there who will be like, well, Jesus and Paul preached different messages. Jesus preached work salvation. Paul preached salvation by faith. No, here's from the very words of Jesus. How are sins forgiven? They're forgiven on the basis of faith in his finished work. So how do I get that forgiveness? Faith, trusting in the finished work of Jesus alone and rejecting all trust in yourself. What is Jesus doing in verse 50? It's not like she's getting saved again, but rather Jesus was reaffirming what was already true of her. From the time she put her trust in Jesus, she was forgiven, and Jesus reminds her over and over again. You see, she was forgiven, but she needed to hear it again. And I dare say that we as Christians were forgiven, but we need to hear it again and again and again and again. You might ask, why do you preach the gospel every Sunday? Every Sunday I'll talk about what Jesus did on the cross for us and what that means for us. I preach the gospel every Sunday because we forget it every Monday, right? We need, we need the reminder of what Jesus has done for us regularly, not just, well, Easter, Christmas. No, every week we need the reminder of, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner and I've been forgiven by his grace. In fact, we need the reminder every day when we go to God in prayer that I'm nothing but he is forgiven. That is our identity. Beloved, if you have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, you're no longer sinner woman in the city, but you are now forgiven saint at the feet of Jesus. Your identity is no longer with that sin. You don't identify saying, well, I'm a Christian whose identity is wrapped up in this sin. We hear people today say, well, I'm a gay Christian. No, 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 you're a sinner who's forgiven by Jesus, and maybe you're still battling that particular sin, but that's not who you are anymore. Who you are is forgiven, washed, and justified. What if we battled sin from the fortress of forgiveness rather than rushing out alone onto the field of guilt and shame? What if we fought sin from the posture of I'm a saint in Christ and I am forgiven and I am a saint and I am becoming who I am and sin is contrary to my identity in Jesus? What if we fought sin from that posture rather than starting off from defeat being like, oh, well, I guess here I am again. This is who I am and I can't help it. No, as a Christian, we have been forgiven and that is our identity. Jesus tells her, go in peace, literally go into peace. You're going to walk from here on out into a a constant life of peace, reconciliation with God. You've got a relationship with God now. It's not that just her status before God as either a condemned sinner or a forgiven saint has changed. Not just that legal change before God, but there's been a relational change. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, it's not just your sins are forgiven, you're going to go to heaven one day, but you enter into a relationship with the Most High God been reconciled to him, and there's no longer war between you and God, but peace. Leon Morris writes, the rabbis held that go in peace was proper in bidding farewell to the dead, but to the living one should say go into peace. So even that formula, go into peace, that's what it is in the original, is Jesus saying you're no longer dead, 
May you rest in peace. But you are now alive. Go walking into peace. New life, new relationship, new standing before God. If any man therefore be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So what do we do with this? I think it's interesting that we're not told anything else about Simon the Pharisee. The story ends abruptly. We don't know how Simon reacted to this. And I think it leaves a big question mark at the end of Luke chapter 7. One, a question that we should answer ourselves. Am I Simon or am I this woman? Simon was not forgiven. He was lost. He wouldn't see his sin. My question to you, if you're not a Christian here today, and I don't mean just a cultural Christian or you identify as a Christian, but your sins have not been forgiven and there's no evidence of love in your life, why not put your reliance in Jesus today and turn to him in repentance? Maybe this morning you are apathetic. Your love has grown cold. Your worship has kind of turned into mm, just kind of duty, and it's like, man, coming and gathering with God's people is just such a hassle. Reading the Bible is just so unenjoyable. Obeying Jesus is such a drudgery. Maybe you're apathetic this morning. Maybe you're beginning to be more like that Pharisee where you love little because you don't recognize how great your debt of forgiveness is. My question to you is, do you love much? Do you measure your love to Jesus by doing the minimum or by by doing what is sacrificial? Pharisees measure their goodness in by doing the bare minimum. How little can I do? How can I define the rules of what God wants me to do so I can do as little as possible? Where disciples measure their service to Jesus by doing the maximum. How do you view other sinners? Something very telling about the heart of, of Simon when he looked at the woman he simply saw was, she's a sinner and I'm better than her. Listen, someone who has been forgiven and who is aware of their forgiveness cannot look at other sinners and think, I'm better than them. I'm a forgiven sinner. They're simply an unforgiven sinner. But we're still both sinners. How do you view those other people? How do you respond? How would you respond if a notorious, famous, public sinner entered the room this morning? Would you respond like Simon or like Jesus? Jesus welcomed her to come, and she's hearing the good news, and she's in his presence. Simon disdained her and rejected her. How do you respond when people wrong you? I guarantee you this woman from this day forward was not one who would hold grudges against people because she knew, if man, I've sinned against the most high God and he's forgiven me. If he has forgiven me, surely I can forgive other people. If I've been forgiven my 500 denarii, who am I to hold an offense of one denarii against someone else? And maybe there's another group here I want to address, the discouraged. I mean, I'm trying to live the Christian life. I love Jesus, but I'm discouraged. I feel like every day I fail. I feel like no day, I feel like every day I'm just sort of living under this cloud of low-grade guilt. Did you realize God did not intend for us to live the Christian life under a constant cloud of low-grade guilt? He intended us to live under the bright and clear skies and the sunshine of his full acceptance. Not thinking, whoa, what do I have to do to please God? Because he's just never happy. He's a father who's impossible to please. No, he's already been pleased in Christ, and he loves you as a son and daughter. And the the banner that, that flies over your home in God's eyes is not failure, but forgiven. Not useless sinner, but useful saint. So what do you do when you sin? This is our impulse is, well, I sin, I messed up again. I need to just kind of beat myself up and do some penance. So the Bible does not teach that at all. 
Rather, you run to Christ believing that he will forgive you. You're like, even if I sin more than one time, even if you sin more than one time, even if you sin 10,000 times, you run back to Jesus and he forgives you. I don't mean getting saved again, but I mean restoring the fellowship and enjoying the relationship. We don't have to sort of put ourselves in the doghouse every time we mess up, but we confess and we forsake our sin and we find mercy and you run to Jesus over and over and over again. That's the Christian life is just running back to Jesus. When Alfred Pinkard announced Wilberforce University's plan to forgive student debt, the most excited were those who owed the most. And so it is with grace. Those who owe the most are going to be the most grateful. And the reality is we all owe an infinite debt, so we should all be grateful and overflow with worship. And listen, one day we will similarly graduate, graduate into heaven. And none of us will be there because we paid the sin debt ourselves, None of us will be there because we paid the tuition, so to speak, ourselves. We will be there because Jesus paid it for us. We'll be there because he absorbed the punishment. And one day we will hear God say to us, repeat to us what is already true if you are in Christ. Your account has been cleared and you don't owe anything. Father, we praise you for your forgiveness that is so free to us in Christ